Little Box Crusade presents Monthly Monday Movie Muckabout because the podcasting world needs another movie review show. I am Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and I love movies. Love them, love, 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 love. Love them so much that I decided to break into somebody else's attic, take over all their movies, along with my movies, and invite other people in to watch movies that I enjoy and I want to share with them. And my favorite part of this is having friends, including friends that I've just met, come on the show and talk about movies. And that's what we got today, because I have got a brand new friend of mine, Stephen Givens, straight out of Delaware. He's a frequent guest of Fire and Water Network. He's a teacher. He's a fanboy. He's an all-around nice guy. And I had some wonderful dinner conversation with him and the Sutherlands and Tim Price at the Baltimore City Comic Con recently. And I had to reach out and say, Steve, why don't you come on and watch a movie with me? So how you doing, Steve? Wait, we've met before? <laughs> <laughs> Shush, I gave you the 40 bucks. You're supposed to pretend that you know me. Oh, oh, oh yeah. On, yeah, man. yeah, we met. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm happy to be here, Rick. Thank you for asking me to do this. No, it's it's my pleasure. Like I said, we met at Baltimore City Comic Con. First time I've ever interacted with you. And once again, we met through Tim Price mm -hmm. and the Sutherlands. Mm -hmm. Three people who are amazing and wonderful, very gregarious. And anybody who I've met with those guys has been pleasant and enjoyable. And we've had we had a couple of great meals and just walking around the Comic Con mm -hmm. together as well. So it, it's been very enjoyable. I'm glad that I met you there. Mm -hmm. And I was I really wanted to reach out and do this with you because we got along so well, so it's fun. Oh, thanks. I likewise. I feel the same way. And I, again, I appreciate you asking me to do this. I'm really excited about it. I like you. I'm a big movie fan. So anytime I get a chance to pontificate about <laughs> films, I am here. I'm there for it. Well, I'm glad. I know before we started talking, we were talking about a couple different films that we had seen. Mm -hmm. Was there any films or is there any type of films that really have drawn you in in the past? You know, what type of movies do you like to watch or what type of films do you find yourself going back to over and over and over again? I've always been a movie watcher. I, in fact, uh, I was at a very young age. I think I freaked out my parents a couple times because of my ability to kind of, even at like four or five years old, being able to, to be engrossed in a film. Probably the best example I can think of my mother. I don't know what possessed her to do this. Maybe it's because she just wanted to see the film, but she took my sister and me to see On Golden Pond okay. in the theaters. Okay. You know, and I was five or six at the time. That's not a five or six year old movie, <laughs> but I remember going there and watching it and just being completely, completely captured by it and like being involved in the story, what was going on, you know, and uh, not really understanding everything because I mean, that's, that's an adult movie, adult mm -hmm. story. But I wasn't squirming around. I wasn't getting bored. I wasn't falling asleep. I was engrossed in what was happening. And so I, I've always been able to watch films. And I've always liked a wide variety of films. If you were to take a look at my uh, Blu-ray and DVD collection, yes, I still do physical media. Mm -hmm. I have a wide selection of like going back to old classics, black and white classics, to action adventure. I mean, I, I have every genre represented in my collection simply because i i do like a well-made film now i will say this i'm as i've gotten older i've gotten very picky while i don't have a, a particularly favorite genre to watch 
I, I become impatient with genre films that do nothing more other than just be an exercise in that genre. I'm like, okay, if I'm predicting everything that you're, that's going to happen because you're just connecting the dots here. And I'm like, all right, I've got no time for this film. I mean, recently, like a film like Knives Out, mm-hmm. when it, I, I, that really captured me because I'm like, okay, this is a, a just a, a classic Agatha Christie whodunit, but there is interesting stuff going on here with how people are being like the characterization and and how the the take it's being the spin that's being put on it so i really appreciate films like that like give me a genre film where the filmmaker has done something interesting with it they're adding to the genre yes yeah or they're or doing something stylistically that is just interesting it doesn't have to be like a transcendent right film you know but it has to be something like okay you're you're working within the structure of the genre but you're bringing some flavor to it then you're bringing something to it that makes it stand out from the other films i am glad to hear you talk about that i I know Mm -hmm. that we have covered knives out on here before Mm -hmm. and i love the movie and it was great to bring that to a guest who also loved it as well just being surprised that something we might consider very rote yeah could bring so much more to filmmaking into genre and mm-hmm. to into our enjoyment as well so sure I'm very happy to hear you say that but i am fascinated because just with your history and your collection of movies i was very fascinated in the list that you gave me and i saw a couple <laughs> of films on there that i really wanted to talk to you about but i had to put those aside even though okay. there's one film on there that i really wanted to talk about something with us like, oh my god they've got it on here i'd love to talk about them i was like no 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 no, i can't looking at the list i found something that was just an anomaly and especially mm-hmm. hearing you talk about your love yeah. of movies and everything mm-hmm. i think i know where you're going with this why have you not seen die hard <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I knew, I knew that was going to catch your eye. Um, (laughs) How have you not seen Die Hard? The 1988 action film by John McTiernan with Bruce Willis and Alan Brickman. (laughs) Here is the thing, okay? I have probably seen maybe two thirds of the film in bits and pieces like i have seen all i mean i know the story i know what happens i know all the big plot moments all the big scenes but i have never for whatever reason i don't know i I mean honestly it's just never been on my radar because i it's i guess it's a movie that i've always felt like i've known so well it's so part of pop culture that i've never felt the need to sit down and watch it because I feel like I have watched it. Does it make sense? I understand what you're saying. Uh, okay. I understand what you're saying. But no, I've never actually sat down and watched it from beginning to end and had that experience with it. I've it's always been I don't know if you want to say that I've 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 picked up on the film through osmosis, through cultural osmosis or something. And I think you've nailed it. And I and I know after you watch the film we're going to talk a lot more about it, but there's yeah. many scenes that are iconic. Yeah. There is yeah. there's a the action the the, the catchphrases, sure. the storyline itself is incredibly simple and it's been used mm-hmm. in various takes. You know, it's like, you know, it's part of pop oh, culture. And the sequels as well. Yeah, it's part of the pop culture uh, sentiment. Mm-hmm. This is just die hard on a bus. This is die hard on a ship. Mm-hmm. And everyone knows what you're saying. So it's it's a simple movie, but <laughs> what I, I couldn't do this. You gave me the game. I want to talk to somebody about Michael Douglas's The Game, but I couldn't. I could not pass this up because Die Hard's on there, and I also want to talk about Die Hard, and nobody else is going to come at me and mm-hmm. say, oh, no, I've never seen Die Hard. Everyone's seen Die Hard, except for you. Sure. You, man, have not seen Die Hard. <laughs> 
you know, the funny thing is I have watched actually making of documentaries of Die Hard. <laughs> I, I've never seen. You're, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to say, "Oh, here's a making of thing I want to see. I'm gonna go ahead and hold on to that so I can watch the movie so I can understand what they're talking about with this." Hey, man, I do what I want. I do what I want. You know, that's just how I roll. You know, deal with it. You know what? I don't want to eat this hot dog. I want to go to the sausage factory and see how they make the sausage and not eat the hot dog. Yeah, well, you know. All right. So, I I, I mean, I usually ask, you know, what do you know about this movie? I think you answered that. Why haven't no. you seen it? Well, I screamed that at you. So, I'm going to go ahead and just stop because we need to let you go and enjoy mm-hmm. this Christmas movie. Yes, I am the p- type of person oh, who says that this is you. a Christmas yes. movie and it's the right time because I don't know when we're going to put this out mm-hmm. or we're going to finish recording it, but we are recording this part now prior to Christmas. So I'm giving you a Christmas movie to watch. I'm going to let you <laughs> take a moment to go back to 1988 and finally, finally watch Die Hard while everybody mm-hmm. else gets to hear the wonderful, wonderful trailer for the movie. We'll see you later. It's Christmas Eve in L.A. California. Is Daddy coming home soon? Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do, okay? A New York cop, John McLean, has come to see his wife. Instead, he's going to have to save her. Within this skyscraper high above the city, 12 terrorists have declared war. They're about to be told a lesson in the real use of power. There is brilliant. Because I am interested in the $640 million in your vault. As they are ruthless. And I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. Now, the last thing McLean wants. Think, David, think. Is to be a hero. Where's Holly? Hey, Tucker! Where? But he doesn't have a choice. What does he think he's doing? <laughs> job. They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. He's inside? Who is he? Who are you then? You have lost troublesome for a security guard. Sorry, wrong guess, huh? Would you like to go for double jeopardy? Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee guy, You just destroyed a building. And I am in charge of this situation. Well, I got some bad news for you. Come up here, that look like you're in charge of Jack. He is alone, he's tired, and he hasn't seen Disney Squad from anybody down here. Hey pal, how you feeling? All things being equal, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. I want luck, and you have it. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. He's an easy guy to like. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. And a hard man to kill. Bruce Willis. Die hard. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? And welcome back. Now, you've just heard the trailer for Die Hard, and I know 
Everybody out there has seen Die Hard like a million times. You know, everybody except Steve. But for those of you that may not have seen it anytime soon, let me let me remind you about what this film is about. John McClane is a police officer from New York City who is flying out to see his estranged wife, who is currently working for the Nakatama Corporation in Los Angeles. It's not really clear if he's got a place to stay or not. It's not really clear if his wife will really be happy to see him or not. She doesn't even know if he's really going to show up. But he does show up. But while he shows up, there is also a group of terrorists slash robbers who also show up with the intention of making this holiday party at the Nakatoma Plaza one to be remembered for a long time. John McClane is a man alone who's fighting against an unknown group of European terrorists who are trying to rob a lot of money from this company, and he's doing it without the help of anybody except one lone policeman who was just on his way home with some Twinkies for his pregnant wife. So, Steve, this is your first time seeing Die Hard. You have heard about it. You've watched various clips, memes. You've seen bits of the movie your entire life, but you've never sat down and watched the entire thing. What is your first impression of the movie? How much did it meet up with your expectations? First of all, Carl Winslow was allegedly taking the Twinkies home to his pregnant wife. It's never, ever made clear that he was actually taking them home to his wife. I mean, I come on. <laughs> of course i say carl winslow because that's the the character he went on to play in, in family matters um yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> reginald yeah. vell johnson but reginald reginald vell johnson <laughs> as al powell he mentions a few times that his wife is home pregnant the person who really gives some grief about that is that ampm employee and that guy can just that guy can go <laughs> and sit back in his corner and know his role so what about you, though? What did you think of this film? What was your feelings? When I said, uh, when we first did this rundown of why I'd never watched it, it's because I felt like I had already seen it, you know, because mm-hmm. I had seen all the major clips. I knew all the major plot beats, and it was a film that I didn't really feel, haven't felt a burning need to sit down and watch like some of the other films I've got, I gave, I had on the list that I gave you. And when I sat down to watch this, it's I, I, no, this isn't a dig. I just like I, I wasn't surprised by anything. I even knew going mm-hmm. in the order in which he kills the henchman. Like I knew who was going to get <laughs> killed next. But I, I mean, I, it was so weird because I knew the film that well, but I'd never actually seen it. I'm like, OK, you know, he's uh, about to kill Tony here. He's going to write the, you know, I know I got a machine gun. Type mm-hmm. of, and, you know, I, I knew what was going to happen. With that said, it's an enjoyable popcorn film. I, you know, I was completely entertained by it. It was fun. It ventured just this side of cartoony, but not being too cartoony, like not being over the top where there were no, no stakes in the matter. Like in in a later sequel, doesn't he have, doesn't he like ride a fire hydrant in a later sequel or something or something along the, yeah. Yeah. I think so. The things get more and more. Yeah. Yeah, insane yeah. as it goes on for the first one out it's it remains fairly mm-hmm. simple film i always appreciate a film that does what it needs to do kind of gets out of its own way and i wouldn't say that it's a i mean i was and i said before like i, I appreciate genre films that really try mm-hmm. to do something unique or entertaining or something something other than just being exercised in the genre And I think Die Hard falls into this category, but I do want to add a caveat that I do appreciate a film that is a well-made representation of the genre that it's in, and that is Die Hard also. 
I mean, I think there's some tweaks here that gets done in the screenplay that are clever, that are also moving the action genre, the the action film uh, genre forward a little bit, but also changing what we envision as an action hero, considering that it came out in 1988 and knowing what came before that and then what came after it. It it does offer something more than just an exercise in the genre. But it's also a great exercise in the genre, you know? <laughs> it's great that you mm-hmm. said that because I rewatched this myself on Friday yeah. night. And we're, we're recording this on Sunday. So Saturday night, last night, my wife went to bed early. And I remembered that there is a there's a little show on Netflix called The Movies That Made Us. And they did one of these on Die Hard. And it's a very silly little concept that they do. But it's, it's, it's fun. And I think that that little show puts out some very good points on the movies that they deconstruct. That's one of the documentaries I actually watched. I told you about last time. I'd actually watched documentaries on the making of this film before even watching it. (laughs) And and I think that it does a great job of Mm -hmm. breaking down exactly what you said. Die Hard came out in the height of the 80s. You know, it was preceded. And the guy who made this film was the same guy who made it Predator. So, I mean, he's already coming in with action. He knows mm-hmm. action. He comes into Die Hard and says, I want to do things just a little bit different. I want to really crank up the comedy. I want to take away some expectations. So you got the starting point with the action hero of Bruce Willis, who at that time was a TV comedian who also sang jingles for a wine cooler. Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm-hmm. Sylvester Stallone, Clint Eastwood, he is not. He is he's kind of a wimpy little guy. Yeah. And he's, you know, kind of a little comedian almost. You got John McClane, who is not presenting as an action hero. And he spends most of his the time in this film not really confronting the bad guys. And when he does confront the bad guys, he is really on the losing end. He gets lucky more than he is good. You don't have the traditional action star, and yet, like you said, this redefines what the film is. Let's talk about some of the characters first, and then we can get into some of the action scenes. Tell me your thoughts on Bruce Willis as John McClane. Well, you know, he's a different kind of action hero. Like I was saying before, um, the first thing, and again, I knew this going in, but the first time we meet John McClane, he is gripping the arms of the airplane seat afraid of flying. And I kept thinking, what a neat little reversal there, because typically in a Sylvester Stallone action film, in a Clint Eastwood action film, he would be on the plane, the the Eastwood character would be on the plane arriving, and there would be maybe a uh, a cameo from a stand-up comet who's freaking out because he doesn't like to fly. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it be Clint Eastwood or, or Stallone looking over at him, you're like, what the hell is your problem? You know, like it just kind of rolls his eyes and, you know, it's meant to be a, a throwaway comic moment. But then we, but instead we've got the action hero doing that and being afraid to fly or being nervous about something. And of course, we also learn eventually he's got other stuff weighing on him uh, with his personal life. In that same moment, we also get the really cool setup with the guy who tells him, oh, when you get home I and mean, when you get to wherever you're going, take off your shoes and just ball up your feet in the carpet and it'll take away any anxiety or problem you have with flying. And I was, and I kept thinking, what another great setup for why he's barefoot throughout the rest of the film. And so immediately we're introduced to John McClane being vulnerable. Like he isn't the badass cop coming in to, you know, to come see his estranged wife and try to win her back or something. He is, he shows up, he's, he's a very defeated man in many respects Mm -hmm. because his, his wife and family are no longer with him. He is having to fly, which apparently he hates. 
And now he's immediately going into a situation with all these corporate bigwigs where he feels entirely out of his element. He's a New York cop in L.A. Yes. And, and you know, this is the 80s, East Coast, West Coast. They yeah. are so valiantly different. They do a lot of good things to really emphasize that, you know, with the people he sees and how he interacts with some people at the party. Mm-hmm. That first five minutes of the film, like right before, right up until just after they say Die Hard. In fact, they're, they're still showing who's in the film on the screen. In that first five minutes, you know nearly everything you need to know about John McClane mm-hmm. and his wife. And yes. I had to, when I was rewatching it, I stopped the film at that point in time. I said, I have seen films today that at the end of the movie, I can look around going, I don't know anything about the main characters at all, except that I just saw them on this film. Mm-hmm. First five minutes of the movie, I know about this guy and I know about his wife. And they shorthand a lot of it. I mean, you know, he's on the plane, he's got the gun, which we're kind of like going, wow, having a gun on a plane, you know, that's <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> smoking in the airport. Okay. You know, it, there's things that are massively dated. You you know, he's a cop, you know, he has these, these other fears, these other things on his mind. You know that he is completely out of his depth when he's riding in the front seat of the limo yeah it's yeah, my first time in the limo too you know and, and the limo driver's pulling stuff out you know he's a very reserved guy but you're finding out the exact family situation he's in right now and that he is this is not where he wants to be at all mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about his wife holly Gennaro, played by yeah. bonnie bedalia mm-hmm. what do you think about her and and especially like late 80s yeah. you know female supporting character i saw a common trend in this film of a reversal of tropes that you normally see in films and i'm not saying that this is completely breaking the tropes or like branching out i mean uh, it, essentially holly's character is a damsel in distress i mean she's literally in a tower <laughs> having to be rescued right right but Again, you're talking about how everything is set up very neatly. And that is just wonderful screenwriting. Like you, in, in that first few minutes, you know everything you need to know. On top of that, we get these moments where the characters are still working within their tropes. I mean, with all the things we get added with John McClane, he is still an action hero. Right. Mm-hmm. In right. with with Polly, she is still a damsel in distress. But some of the things that we get is like she shows an immense strength in, in situations, especially when she goes and she is uh, one of the first main characters, if I remember correctly, to actually come face to face with Hans Gruber. I mean, she comes face to face with Hans Gruber before John McClane does, I think. Right. In the sense yeah. of where she goes into the office and says, hey. Um, people are about to go to the bathroom on the floor. There's a pregnant woman out here. And he's, and he was like, what idiot put you in charge? And you she's did. like, well, you did because you killed my <laughs> boss, you know? Yeah. And so she's got a, a bit of a, I, you know, the interesting that she's this big corporate executive and I believed her as a corporate exec. Like I'm like, okay, yeah. you'd look like somebody who'd go in and run a board meeting. But another moment that for me just like really showed her intelligence and her ability to observe is after one big confrontation that John has with all the hostages, they come down, they're all kind of, and the, who's, the, who's the big blonde one? I can never remember his name. His brother was Tony. Uh, Carl. Carl. And that's played by Alexander Godunov, who's a dancer, and we're going to get to him. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> well, he comes down, and no one knows exactly what happens. No one, what has happened. No one, terrorists aren't telling anybody anything. But Holly is watching intently and she sees him like start punching a door frame or something. And that tells her John's alive. Like she was, mm-hmm. she's like, what has happened? Is John dead? She knows that he's there. 
And I mean, there's a funny joke that she makes. Nobody, only John can make somebody that, uh, that angry. Yeah. But it also shows her intelligence because she sees there's, she, she makes the connection. There's gotta be a reason why this guy is feeling so frustrated and angry. And it must be because John has got away. And that, I mean, so she takes some hope from that. And to me, I'm like, when you have moments like that, where you allow a character to think, to come to a realization, that's really kind of a cool thing. Uh, you don't, yeah. you don't get that a lot. Usually things they, you know, the big Hollywood films, they feel like they have to have things spelled out explicitly for the dumb audience. They don't ever, okay, you, have, you got a smart character, let them, let them show you what they're able, what their, what conclusions they're coming to. And so that the audience can go along with it instead of having everything being like, you know, ha- having, instead of having um, one of the terrorists say he got away, he's alive, you know, mm-hmm. and then she gets hard right. from that. Instead they have her come to that realization, which I is, they didn't have to do that. No, you know, and so they, they, the fact that they chose to do something like that rather than go with the more, I don't know if it would have been easier, but definitely would have been more standard approach. Touches like that really made me kind of like the film. And also it builds her character. Like, you know, she's an intelligent character, even though she's going to follow all the the plot beats of the typical damsel in distress. Well, she also had the little bits, a couple other character beats, like they're going around trying to find her boss and Mm -hmm. the crowd of people. And she's holding his arm saying, no, don't just go up yet and he makes his own decision to go up but you know something about the boss too he does listen to her for a while until he can't stand enough he puts his own trust in there everybody else puts their trust in her as well and even when she is the traditional damsel in distress she's not falling over herself she's not collapsing she's not fainting she is being as strong as she possibly can too with a gun to her head Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of those pieces too which you have to appreciate that the filmmakers and the script people and and the actress herself put into the film and made sure that they were moving the needle forward on what an action movie can really be especially with a supporting cast Mm -hmm. let's stay on the good side of things and you already brought him up but reginald vel johnson as al powell (laughs) yeah and according to the 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 documentary that we both watched this was his last chance he he said i'm going to get out of this acting business if i can't get myself apart and he went in and he tried doing something differently for this part and it worked and he is perfect, perfect mm-hmm. as this character. But let, let me hear you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. Sergeant Al Powell. <laughs> well, again, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record here. He's a subversion of tropes. He could mm-hmm. be just, the, again, the comic relief, the comical bumbling cop who inadvertently stumbles into giving help to the hero. You know, kind of like a Tom Arnold's character in True Lies. You know, mm-hmm. there, that, that character is, is a common thing. Kevin Smith played a version of that character in a later Die Hard film. Like he was, yes. and with, what's the character's name? I keep wanting to say, uh, I keep wanting to Al. call him his Family Matters <laughs> character. Al, right. <laughs> well, Al is, he's got a past. They've given him mm-hmm. an interest, not an interesting past, a kind of tragic past where, well, very, not kind of, actually very tragic past where he has killed a, a teenage boy accidentally and doesn't want to be back on the street and he is now walking around i mean he gets called to this scene and and at first he doesn't want to do anything about it but then you know you get the comic moment where they where john drops the dead body of the terrorist on the car but then you know you see instead of 
it is funny, like that car, him backing up the car and trying to get away. It is funny, but it's also, you know, skillful driving. John even mm-hmm. mentions it later on, like you, way you drove like that. I thought you were on, you definitely were on the street. Right. So it, he's not incompetent, right? He no. is funny. There are comic moments with him. The incompetence comes with the deputy chief, the one played by Paul Gleason, the, the horns right. guy from uh, Breakfast Club. And <laughs> Yeah, Dwayne Robinson. Dwayne Wob- Robinson, the LAPD. That's, uh, that, that name is such a dude. I was douchey name, like Dwayne yes. Robinson. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you are a total tool. I can just from yeah. your name. That's all. There's all. That's the only thing you can be. So we do get like the the bumbling, uh, inept character in him, but it's usually would be a character like Al, who would be right. you know, like he's heavy set, which is the typical trope of that character of being almost like the false staff from Shakespeare mm-hmm. type of thing where, you know, you're the, the bumbling ne'er-do-well, the, the everything's uh, uh, just, just falling off a log type of life you lead. But, you know, they again, they tweaked his character. They did something different with him and he becomes an integral part to the story. If you have more of a stereotypical physiqued or, or charismatic police officer type actor in that role, you're going to lose something because Reginald Vell Johnson, maybe because of his weight and mm-hmm. just how he presents himself, but he comes across as very caring. He has some strictness to him. When he's walking around the, you know, inside the lobby, he is still walking around like a policeman and he's still checking things out and he he maybe bows out a little bit early, but he's just like, you know, this feels fine. Nothing's really out of the ordinary. He feels fine. So he still is able to present himself as a police officer. Yeah, well, he's just really thinking about the Twinkies. When he goes yeah, he's also thinking about Twinkies. He's thinking about going home. He's also thinking what we later find out is mm. this is not what I do anymore. You know sure. why he's actually in a black and white. He probably is just he is covering for somebody to make sure they got some bodies on the street. But he is just out there as first look, and he's going to call somebody else in. And he's like, you know, no, this isn't my thing. But he stays on the scene, and he continues to talk to John McClane. And you have somebody who's got a compassion, understanding. And the intelligence, too, that he is putting things together, too. He is putting together that this guy's a cop. He is saying things. He is doing things that means that he is a badge somewhere. Mm -hmm. And he's putting a lot of stuff together. And he instantly realizes, I can't push for a lot of information because that's going to push you out too. And he tries to protect him as much as possible. You're right. And he's also, he's dealing with his own struggles, his own um, conflict with the inept LA uh, police chief. Mm -hmm. And also when the FBI guys show up. So he's kind of got like a secondary conflict going on. And I tell you the moment that he started piecing stuff together. I mean, that's, that's when it solidified for me and like, okay, there, there's something, I mean, I knew the character, what he ended up being. I, I, I know the very famous ending part where he kills the last hostage. Spoiler warning for anyone who's watching. <laughs> you know, I knew that was coming, uh, but I really liked the fact that they had him again, be smart enough like Holly to start piecing things together. And it, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but this is just what I do. It reminded me of the moment in Fargo where I was watching it and I was like, this is a dumb movie. This is a dumb movie. This, this is going to be a bumbling police chief who is going to just stumble upon these, these wackos who are going to mm-hmm. mess up a, a kidnapping. 
what turned that movie on a dime for me was when Marge Gunderson shows up at the scene of the crime after they have killed um, the police officer who pulls him over and then the, do the, the assassination of the drive people who were just driving mm-hmm. by. She looks around and she just completely figures out what's happened. She's like, okay, yeah. so we had this and this and this, all doing that crazy Minnesota accent. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. She's actually really smart. <laughs> and I had that yeah. kind of a same moment with Al, like, Al's putting this together in ways that no one else on the ground is. So he's going to be the one that even as as an audience member, because I know what's going on, I'm going to be rooting for you because you know what's up. Yes. You know, it's a very good way of putting the audience immediately on Al's side. Even if we weren't all, I mean, even though we're already there pretty much because it's, you know, he, he comes across very quickly as a likable character. But the fact that he is now intelligent and putting things together and is one of the only people on the ground who's actively trying to help John, you're like, yeah, okay, well, we're with you, Al. Anytime we're there and you can, you know, he's also kind of the voice of the audience too. Like he, I had that really funny moment where um, when the FBI do show up and the police chief is like putting his uh, jet coat on, he's like, do you want a breath mint? You know, I, yeah. I, I just, <laughs> I know that the audience, not necessarily thinking that same line, but thinking something similar, like, oh my God, yeah. like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Do, do you need a, do you need a mirror to yeah, make sure your yeah. hair is okay? <laughs> the other thing about having this police officer on the ground and you got John McClane up in the tower it also becomes a buddy cop movie and it redefines what a body buddy cop movie is too, because it doesn't have to be the the serious one and the comedic one. You can have just two intelligent people working through a case together and doing it from different places. But it also starts to question some of those, that buddy cop mentality as well. Mm -hmm. Here's an interesting question for you though. If we look at this as a love story, do you think there's more of a love story between John McClane and Holly or John McClane and Al Powell? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think there's more I, I, simply because of the screen time that is allotted. Yeah, there is. We definitely feel the chemistry and relationship, the audience, I mean, between Al and John, just because yeah. they have they have more interaction throughout the course of the story. We only have one short scene at the beginning and they end up uh, between Holly and John and they end up arguing and their argument gets interrupted. And then they don't see each other again until the end of the film. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, that is nothing. That's not a fault of the actors and that's not a fault of the screenplay. I'm not, that's not like me offering a criticism. It's just that if, if you're talking about, which relationship am I emotionally more invested in as an audience member? It's going to be the budding friendship between Al and between John, because the relationship or the broken relationship between John and Holly is just presented as a given. This is what it is, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're not really given a moment to see like, Oh, at one point, these two really did care about each other. And that takes time to develop that in a film. And that wasn't the focus of the film. You know, this wasn't like scenes from a marriage or anything like that. Right. You, know. you have to assume that they, at one time, loved each other. Sure. They, they've, they do have a couple of mm-hmm. kids together, and you, you can see them both wanting to try. Mm-hmm. They, they, it's like they're both reaching for something that they once had. So you can, you can put together the assumption that they've got something together. But you almost feel that at the end, they're back together because they've just been through a massively traumatic event, and they're just happy to be alive. Whereas you see the absolute joy on... 
John and Al's face when they see each other and recognize that's you. Mm-hmm. That's that's you are the one I've been talking to, and having that relationship kind of just blossom at that scene. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a release for us. That's kind of where the climax of that love yeah. story, if you will, comes together. I just thought of that myself. Just <laughs> just just thinking about. It. Oh my Let's god, you are so brilliant. I didn't know that I was on a show with a genius. Wow. I'm going to edit I'm going to edit that out. All right. Let's talk about some bad guys and I'm not okay. talking about you. <clears throat> I mean, we can go down the list. Yeah. We could start with the, the 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 minor to the major but we can't. Okay. We have to start with one name and oh, yeah. one name only and that name is Rickman. Yes. And that is Alan Rickman playing Hans Gruber. He came from nowhere mm-hmm. to do this. He was on the stage in Broadway. Yeah. And he was good, but he comes in and he he established himself with this movie. Well, this was what literally his first film, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. God, what the hell? What a what? way to come out swinging! What? Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, um, what did I think? Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen an Alan Rickman film or a film with Alan Rickman in it where I thought he was bad. I've seen bad films with him in it but i've not come out of ever come out of a film thinking oh you're well that was kind of a shoddy phoned in performance there rickman i've never came i mean he <laughs> he is he he's uh, extremely professional or excuse me was unfortunately uh, extremely yes. professional and i don't want to say reliable that uh, just capable and you know brought something to the table with every every film that he was in and this is no exception I don't know if he was, if he added this stuff himself, because in the process of making a film, and if you remember watching that documentary, mm-hmm. this film was a hot mess in terms yes. of of how they were like getting it together. The, the material that it's based on has almost nothing to do tonally with what ended up on screen. So I don't know how much... Uh, Rickman was involved in the process of developing Hans Gruber. I didn't know because you know, and when you're filming, your 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 actors are going to ad lib. They're going to collaborate with the director to kind of tweak things and change things. What if I say this here, or what if I do that? I don't know to what extent Rickman did any of that. It being his first film, or was he just relying on what was in the script and doing what he could with what was in the script? I have you a know. feeling that he was he was embellishing and he was adding. Okay. I, just like you said, the way that they were writing the script, you know, I think there were about two or three days written material ahead of what was actually being filmed. Got so it. I mean it was okay. it was happening real fast. Sure. And there been there was a lot of problems that they were having with the film, including how were we going to get the bad guy and the good guy to actually see each other face to face? We need some way to do it. Uh-huh. And they had no idea of how to crack that egg. So one time during a lunch, they're at the craft table and the crew's talking to Alan Rickman and saying, you know what? Everybody who's from Europe has got an American accent that's just horrible or, you know, it's funny. (laughs) Can you do one? And he breaks out this Californian accent. And the writer was on set and the writer's like, I've got it. And that's how he put together that entire scene. Oh, I it's never like, knew that. Like, was that in the documentary? On- yeah, that was in the documentary, I too. I must have missed that. What? I, I totally <laughs> yeah, missed that like, explanation. It was, okay. it was like, oh, my God, this is brilliant. You know, okay. He's going to go up and check, and he runs into him. He's only been talking about on the over the radio. And once again, adding in intelligence into your characters mm-hmm. without having to explain it. Hans Gruber puts it together in his own head saying, this guy probably hasn't seen me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess he hasn't seen me. He's only heard my voice. So I am going to change my voice to an American accent. 
I'm going to add a layer to that mm-hmm. because that was a scene that stuck out to me as well, because I have seen other films where Rickman does an American accent. Uh, he did a film with uh, Emma Thompson called Judas's Kiss. It was like a Southern Gothic detective story. And he plays, if I remember correctly, he plays a private, det- a Southern private detective and uses a Southern accent. Of course, I've heard British actors often say that the American Southern accent is easier to affect than... It's Knives Out before Knives Out. Is that what you're telling me? Well, no, 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 not not quite that indecipherable, like, uh, foghorn, leghorn uh, accent that Daniel Craig was doing. No, but I've I've heard him do other accents and Mm -hmm. do it authentically. Now, I'm not saying that he gave a bad performance as uh, in this moment. But I was looking at this, I was like, I've heard him do better accents. And knowing that he was a good actor, you know, I kept wondering, is he layering it on like, no, I'm not Alan Rickman now doing an American accent. I'm now Hans Gruber doing Mm -hmm. an American accent. And there are moments where he is, it's bad acting, you know, and I'm like, he made that choice because he knows that Hans Gruber is not going to be a skilled actor. So he's, he's doing that's bad. That's hard to do. I'm like, (laughs) and, and a throwaway, what could have been a very throwaway uh, action film. I'm like, you're going to do something like this. It reminded me again, I'm going off another wild tangent here. Blazing Saddles. This is Uh okay. okay. Madeline Kahn, who is got a magnificent singing voice. She comes out and she does that. I'm tired song. She is just a little bit off key the Uh whole time. And what? Because it's because it's funny. It's funnier that way. It's funny. Yes, and it's hard to do. It's hard to do consistently without making it sound over the top and and deliberate. You know, and that's something similar that Alan Rickman was doing here is like, he's just bad enough as an actor in this moment to say, okay, this is Hans Gruber who is playing this, but he's also not like a sitcom person with, I'm putting on a mustache and I'm somebody different, you know? It's, it's a believable attempt. Yes. It's, it's it's doing it just enough that we think that we can get by without being a professional at this. It's covering myself up. I'm, I'm smart enough to realize that this is a way out of this and I can do this just enough and I can play my way through this and I might be able to use it to my advantage. Yeah, yeah. The only problem is, is Bruce Willis is just a little bit smarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that whole scene, they, it's done very well to the point where you don't know who has the upper hand at any given time in that scene. Because when the camera does the, the cut over to the list of the names, you're like, okay, John's checking him out. But mm-hmm. try, trying to trip him up. And then he actually says one of the names from the list. And you're like, oh, okay, who's who's like playing who here? You know? Yeah. Ultimately, we learned that it was John playing him. Of course, we don't know at one point, John, when did he realize? Did he, did he think always, at first? Or did he I realize? I always thought it was when he was watching him smoke the cigarette and doing it the European style. That's interesting. That was what I always thought. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's just a bit of a masterclass, too, Mm because you have Alan Rickman, who we have seen that he's gone and done so amazing roles. We've seen him doing so much. And just watching him in this first film, I remember when I first time I saw this, I was like, this guy is amazing. Mm -hmm. He is a fantastic bad guy. He's plays as a terrorist, but he's actually a robber. Oh, all this, and you're just a simple robber. I'm an extraordinary robber. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean... 
he is this good. He has made a plan. It is intricate. He understands the people he's got. He understands how how the police and FBI are all going to be playing this. He is one of these top-tier bad guys that you just have to respect. Mm-hmm. And it's something else that they built into this film. A bad guy that is a worthy adversary. Sure. Yes. And he's also uh, charismatic. He is mm-hmm. creepily civil. <laughs> and <Yes>. hearts <laughs> and he's even like chivalrous in, in in different moments like where you know he is acknowledging that the pregnant lady needs a sofa to sit on you know and i'm not saying that is like oh he's really a good guy deep down i'm just saying that again these are things that didn't have to be put in i, I mean th- there's reason behind it sure he knows the end game of this that they're all going to die Sure. But he also knows that if he treats them with just just enough respect and enough fear that he can keep them in line, mm-hmm. he doesn't want them to keep on bothering him. Sure. So, okay, we can make this simple. Go to the bathroom. Fine. Go to the bathroom. Yeah. I don't care. You all are just casualties that are going to help me out at the end. He doesn't probably, he doesn't even really care if he's going to miss any, yeah. if some of them sneak off because they're going to run away scared and not do what this cop is doing. So, yeah. Well, you know, he could have played it though. When Holly comes into him, he could have been extremely dismissive of her. He could mm-hmm. have been uh, just the way he's playing it is uh, that choice in the way he's choosing to hold himself and how he's choosing to react to her. I mean, he's, he's dismissive at first. What idiot put you in charge? But he, then he recognizes that she's got some cojones to her. And he's like, okay, I'm she's not going to just go away. Yeah. you got my <laughs> attention. And then, uh, and just the way he delivers the line, like, no, I can't open up the office, but we can bring a sofa out. Is that okay? Like just the way yeah. he delivers it is in, a, hands of a, in the hands of a lesser actor. It could have just come across as like, whatever, just, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm in charge. It, it didn't have to be, it was a more human moment than it could, than it needed to be. I'm trying to say, <laughs> and it, I think that was a choice that he brought to it because you're like, oh, okay. Uh, it, it, you know, and it's, you're probably right. That character motivation of let's keep them calm. Let's keep them together. You know, it's all there, but again, in a lesser action film, that wouldn't have been a concern. He's just there to rob and we'll just reveal at the end. He's there to pretend to be a terrorist and we'll just reveal at the end that he's there to rob the place. And we don't have to have this really interesting moment between him and the damsel in distress. You know, it can just be, she comes in, makes a request and he says, fine, now get out, you know, before I shoot you or something, you know, those choices to me are what elevate this film into, into a different a stratosphere, so to speak. It also moves the pieces a little closer together because mm-hmm. it does put her into his eyesight. Mm-hmm. So later on, when we get to our next bad guy that we're going to talk about, about Richard Thornburg, <laughs> when he does his newscast and you see mommy and daddy and, and like Holly Gennaro or Holly McLean, and he starts to put together Holly McLean, John McLean, wait, flips up the picture, he puts it together. Mm-hmm. And you need that little scene there to set up. There's a lot of good screenwriting here with Chekhov's gun, where they put balling your feet in the airplane to uh-huh. he's got his he's got his shoes off in the tower. The meeting of them to to request that a bathroom breaks be done to uh-huh. oh the newscast that occurs. There, there's these little Easter eggs that get planted that work out well. It's not all big truck that guys come out of with no ambulance and then there's an ambulance at the end of the film. It's not all that, mm-hmm. but there are, you know, there is good things that are, are happening there. Let's talk a bit about Richard Thornburg played by William Atherton, the late eighties favorite jerk. Yes. <laughs> he, he played the adult version of every character that James Spader played in eighties films. 
James yes. Spader was yes. always the, the teenage jerk, and Atherton was the adult one. <laughs> Between this and Ghostbusters, man, I just feel sorry for the guy. He couldn't go anywhere without being hated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he played um, it so well. Like he, it so well. he's got that smug, punchable face. Yes, that his his voice is able to crack at the right places where it's just grating, and yet at the same time, it grating and Weasley, I mm -hmm. think, is the way you can describe it. He is great at going in there and just being despicable, hated, and you don't you have to listen to him because guys, he's got the authority and the charisma to get in the door. But the more you listen to, the more you're like. I'm listening to nails on a chalkboard mm -hmm. and I don't want to anymore. But he does, he's the media presence that is just breaking everything down. And uh, you have anything you want to say about him beyond that? <laughs> well, you know, the whole, the, the whole representation of the media in the film is when they bring in like that, that phony baloney expert to talk about what's happening now with the, the hostages and also to the inept, uh, like almost Ron Burgundy level anchor man ineptness that this guy, that the guy has, like, was, he's like, Oh, what was the name of the syndrome that he, I can't remember, the, but the, he was, the Helsinki, the yes, Helsinki yeah. syndrome. <laughs> he was like, and that's Helsinki as in Sweden. And he's like, no, that's in Finland. No, actually. Finland. And he's just looking <laughs> smug and the camera an focuses idiot. on yeah. him. And so it, it was very, I, I guess not really prescient because that was all, the, the, the press being predatory or exploiting tragedy in order to get ratings is nothing new. Yep. It's been around ever since there's been press. There's a statement being made here that there's heroes and then there's people who are not going to be helpful. <laughs> that you have your right. heroes and your villains, and then you have the, the people who are going to be almost the villains because they're not helping the situation at all. And that's definitely the category that the press falls in here. Let me ask you about some of the scenes in this film. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you hated in this film or really didn't enjoy? I thought Argyle was a useless character because I kept thinking the whole time, why is he there other than to have like the cutaways of like, hey, I'm mm -hmm. listening to some music now rather than paying attention to like the fact that this building's coming down around me. I found that distracting in that I didn't think it was as well done or well executed as other things in the film. So it's kind of like that sore thumb that sticks out. If, if the rest of the film had been lower quality... I wouldn't probably wouldn't have noticed the Argyle stuff at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean like the Argyle stuff after he goes into the parking garage, like right. they seem to be setting it up, that Argyle is going to be important in some way, but for the rest of the film until that one moment where he slams into the ambulance, he's really not doing anything other than the, using the company. <laughs> he, he's there for, a little bit of comedy relief. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that they kept building the comedy up in other parts of the film so that you didn't need it. Well, the comedy is so smart in other parts of the film that right. when you cut away right. to him, he's just like, I'm on the phone. I'm eating now. My boss thinks right. I'm in Las Vegas. You know, I think a lot of it also was just, hey, remember, he's here. Hey, remembers he's here. Hey, remembers he's here. <laughs> for what? Because otherwise, you're right. For what purpose? He, we need him for we need him for two last scenes in the movie. We need him to be the carriage that takes away the hero and his miss and his wife into the sunset. There's a bit of a fairy tale story storytelling that's going on here. We need to see the hero right off in the sunset and we've got a limo to you do it. You saw that with one line of dialogue. 
oh, by the way, I'll be back at midnight to pick you up and have and just have the, the everything end right at midnight. And he's there. He's like, what in the hell just happened here? You know, I am not disagreeing with you at all. But you also you also, I guess, need him for the final punch of Theo in the in the ambulance, because otherwise Theo gets away in the ambulance. You know, he's supposed to be the getaway driver. And if he doesn't see them come down, maybe he doesn't. Maybe gets away. It's to tie up that one loose end. I agree. I agree. I think that the little drop-ins with him are a little bit unnecessary. I mean, as to what he's doing there, those are the two things they need him for at the final part of the film. They could have killed off Theo with a stray bullet. I mean, no. (laughs) I mean, I I, I get what you're saying, but I don't see any of it as a justification as to why Argyle, we need to have to keep having the cutaways to Argyle. And once again, Mm. I am completely agreeing with you. (laughs) I am just trying to throw in some reasoning that's there. But yeah, no, I would, I would, back you up that those are probably the weaker parts of the film well, it's, it's, but they're not bad i'll put it to you this way they're it's, not bad it, a weaker it, a weaker parts. yes and it, but in it's weaker parts that really stand out and seem weaker because everything else is so strong in the film right yes. it's it's definitely the the thing that doesn't it's the fly in the ointment you know it, you know it, it's just that one little thing you're like it's not doesn't quite gel what about some of the other things that you really loved in the films what were the things that you really enjoyed watching this mm-hmm. as one complete piece instead of a bunch of smaller pieces. Uh, this is going to sound really strange and like I've got, uh, I'm a really disturbed person, but I really loved the violence in the film. Okay. I loved that when people were getting shot, you saw them getting shot. It was like stuff like almost out of Wild Bunch. I mean, not that there, weren't, there wasn't blood in other films. But the way it was shot, the way it was executed, it was very clear that these bullets were hurting and injuring people. And John McClane has some horrific injuries, like the the foot, uh, when yes. he's like dragging himself into the bathroom and he's got a trail of blood and it, the blood looks real and he's got a lot of blood and you're like, holy crap, he's really injured, you know? And so there's a lot of the the action is very visceral and I'm not saying realistic because like I said, it, it's adventures on the cartooning and in the end, John McClane does like he sucks up a bullet wound and to, to take down the two last two bad guys at the end. And so it, it does go into that action hero trope. I'm no matter how badly injured I am, I'm going to I'm going to carry on. Whereas if you're really kind of if you get shot in your shoulder, you're probably going to be in the fetal position and, and go hide in the closet somewhere, you know. So that's one thing I really liked about the film was just how the violence is being handled. We already talked about the the scene, the first meeting between Hans Gruber and John McClane. That was one a standout Mm -hmm. for me. The, The times when it ventures into like the typical action movie trope, obviously when he sends Tony down in the elevator. That's yeah. that's like a, a a badass moment. That was like something like it reminded me, and I know that this came afterwards. So maybe Grant Morrison was borrowing this from from uh, Die Hard. The first story arc of Grant Morrison's JLA. The JLA is, is fighting White Martians, and but the White Martians have disguised themselves as marvel-like superheroes who are very violent and batman of course being batman is the first one to figure out that these are actually white martians and so he takes one of them down he ends up going into the headquarters and he's of course being batman and skulking around kind of like john mcclain and mm-hmm. he takes one of them down and he puts a note on that he hangs the guy up or hangs the the martian up and puts a note on him that just says i know 
little bat, little bat insignia <laughs> on it, and then run because he takes the guy down using fire because Martians right. are, are weak to, to fire. Anyway, so that when I saw that moment, I'm because I've, I've already seen that moment a hundred million times in other ways, but when I saw it in the context of the film, then I saw how the villains reacted to it. I was like. Grant Morrison stole this from, from <laughs> Die Hard and used it in his JLA story. Well, I, and yeah. as we wrap up, I think mm. that's something that we do need to say is this film recontextualized a lot of what we think about, about action films sure. and about action and about interactions and thinking about how our heroes are. From this, we get a lot of other films that are riffs of this. Normal guy, normalish looking guy. Maybe he's got some military or some police, but they're not buffed up action guys. They look more like, you know, maybe Keanu Reeves on a bus. Hey, Die Hard on a bus. But you get a lot of these playing around with the tropes in other places. To maybe a an nth degree, or maybe they pushed it too far, but it really revitalized what this could be and how we would look at these action stars and how we look at action films. And I think that that is, that is the legacy that a film like this has. And it's always been very, very enjoyable to me. So oh, I was going to say in terms of legacy, uh, one of the screenplay writers went on to write the film version of the fugitive, yes. which is, I think a good example of following a, I mean, the fugitive came first, but I'm talking about the, the film itself and how it was developed and how it was executed I think, like you were saying, owes a lot to Die Hard, or at least Die Hard blazed the trail that said, hey, this type of movie is successful. That It can be something that audiences want to see. And I think I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> then let me ask you this final question. Well, one of two final questions, but how many full bags of popcorn would you give this film on a scale of one to five? Remember, no halvesies here. Five, the best film ever. One, this is horrible. Three, right in the middle. And you got two and four to kind of play with. I would give it a four. Okay. What keeps it from being a five is that a five for me would be a film that is firing on all cylinders and that there's not a false moment in it from beginning to end. And I don't feel that way about a lot of films. Mm -hmm. It's a very rare thing to see when you look at a film like this film from top to bottom is top notch. Mm -hmm. But I will say this, the fourth bag, cheddar dust spread. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really good, <laughs> good four no, bags I, of popcorns. <laughs> I, I was looking at my wife on Friday night and I looked at her and I said, this is a nearly perfect film. Sure. It is nearly perfect. And I, I, I'm right there with you on that four and five. I tend to almost go five because I end up leaving this film with my own personal feelings. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes adds that extra bag for me of just coming out of it and saying yeah maybe i can find some faults in this film here and there maybe i can put you know poke some holes in argyle or or a couple of scenes but the thing is is just how much joy it does yeah. give me and not to say as i told her yes i realize this is not shakespeare this is not <laughs> shakespeare at all but you have actors giving them giving their all. You have an action movie that redefines what an action movie is. And you just have this, I don't know, feeling about it. I guess there's one other little question I have to ask before I let you out of here, too, is do you think this is a Christmas movie? Oh, yeah. Age-old debate. Well, here's the thing. There are people who think that it's a Christmas movie, and then there are people who are wrong. Thank you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, from the, I mean... <laughs> 
Christmas everything is about everywhere. this Christmas movie. Christmas film. Yes, everywhere. It literally, everywhere. It literally <laughs> takes place during a Christmas party. Yeah. It starts with Christmas movie music. It ends with Christmas music. I mean, it's got Christmas all throughout it. Yes. <laughs> he wraps the guy up in Christmas. He uses Christmas tape on the gun. Yes. On his back. I, yeah. It's a Christmas movie. All right. Last question for you then. Where can people on the internet find you? I usually show up wherever I'm asked to be on a podcast. So <laughs> I, I don't I don't know where I'm going to be next. Well, I kind of do. I'm going to be doing a fade out with uh, Rob Kelly coming up here soon. I'm going to be doing the JLU cast uh, episode with uh, the Franklins at some point. And uh, this is all in the Fire and Water uh, podcasting network. So I'm usually... That's where I've, I've gotten involved in all this podcasting stuff because I became friends with those guys. I have my own blog, which is kind of like woefully out of date. If you want to go there and read my old stuff, it's called It's a Givens at Blogspot. I'm on Twitter at It's a Givens. And as far as my latest projects, you know, I'm like... Right now, I'm grading essays, so I don't want to talk. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that too much. Um, <laughs> this is this is my procrastination, so I don't have to go to grading the essays. So you are taking me away from my job responsibilities. Thank you, Rick. I am perfectly okay with that. Being a former <laughs> student myself, I, I don't mind that one bit. No, I really appreciate your time and your effort on this. I, I enjoyed meeting you mm-hmm. recently at Baltimore Comic Con and becoming a good friend with you on Twitter. So thank Likewise. you. Thank you. Thank you. As for myself, you can find me on Twitter at mmuckabout or on my other podcast, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with Jeff, a man who always, always steals candy before he shoots someone. Now, if you would like to be on the show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at jeffandrickpresent, all one word, at gmail.com. And a big thank you to the Longbox Crusade Network for letting me use this beautiful attic of their headquarters to broadcast their show. I'm sorry about blowing up the top floor, but, you know... You have to go with the theme. Anyways, thank you to the Longbox Crusade members who help support this network. And if you would like to support it, head on over to Patreon and search for Longbox Crusade. That's all the time we have for today. Grab some popcorn, pull up a seat for our next episode, which will be out soon. The music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at josephlin99. That's J-O-S-E. F-L-I-N-9-9.